0: Hello and welcome to the Moonshots podcast. It's episode 213. I'm your co-host Mike Parsons and as always I'm joined by Mark Pearson Freeland. Good morning Mark. Good morning Mike. Good morning members,
1: listeners, subscribers. Today we have an action-packed and Mike I I think it's fair to say that this is one of the meatier and more scientific perhaps shows that we've done in recent history. This is a, a big Moonshots edition isn't it today?
0: It really is. We're going deep. We're going evidence-based and one of my absolute favorite academic scientists because this person gives us some practical things to do, doesn't he? He
1: does. Everybody, listeners, members, Mike and the Moonshots family today in episode 213, we're digging into PhD individual, Dr. Andrew Huberman, who is a neuroscientist as well as tenure professor in Stanford, who's made a substantial amount of research into psychiatry, behavioral science, he's provided and created significant contributions to brain development research, brain function, uh, as well as neuroplasticity. I mean, Mike, he's done quite a lot on
0: the old noggin, as well as the nervous system, hasn't (laughs) he? He's got a lot done. That's for sure. Uh, Dr. Andrew Huberman of Stanford. Um, You've probably seen him on YouTube. You've probably uh, heard of him. And if you haven't, doesn't matter because we're going to introduce you to Dr. Andrew Huberman today. Because without a doubt, Mark, he is the guy I've been looking for. I want a source. Like if I want resilience, I go to Goggins. If I want growth mindset, I go to Carol Dweck. If I want to, if I want empathy, if I want to be daring, if I want to kind of get over myself, I go to Brené Brown. Right? If I want to go to the science of health and wellness, this is the guy. There is nobody else because with all respect to the great guys we've studied, Mark, on breathing, on sleeping, on all of these specific areas, the catch is they're very specific. Think about Patrick McGowan on the oxygen advantage. Great, but it's just about breath. I need somebody, I need a go-to playbook and... I need to know the science and the evidence behind how to be at my best mentally, physically, and even a little bit spiritually, according to the science. And the answer at that point, at the end of this rainbow is Dr. Andrew Huberman. And he has so much to offer us because not only does he know the evidence, he knows the reports, he knows the surveys, the studies, he can put them into these simple actions. It's like, You know, it's like the mad scientist has met James Clear, throw in a little David Goggins. I don't know. It's like so many people on one. Here's the answer to health and wellness in the modern age. Dr. Andrew Huberman. Mark, I cannot wait to dig into
1: this show. I, th- I think you're totally right. He's not only going to introduce us and take us through uh, advice around our bodies, but also around our, our habits and behaviors. Like you just said, there's work and evidence with James Clear that Andrew Huberman you know, really helps us understand from more of a scientific perspective, but also the idea of perceptions. You know, there's a little bit of mindset in there. I think we're going to have an all in one package today, Mike.
0: All-in-one sounds great if this is the go-to for your health, your wellness, and knowing that it's really science and evidence-based. So, Mark, I'm ready to get stuck into the world of Dr. Andrew Huberman. Where do you want to kick off this adventure?
1: Let's kick off with Dr. Andrew Huberman. Introduce us to the show by breaking down a little bit of a story that he experienced when he was a kid uh, back in the early 90s and how eventually... It led him into the direction that he's working in nowadays and how it inspired and found his motivation. I was observing
2: what was happening. And then after that, you know, that July 4th, 94 incident was... I realized this is it, you know, it's now or never. It really was one of those moments. You know, you hear about those moments, but it was me realizing I'm you know, I'm living in this squat where I've got a pet ferret, my girlfriend's gone. She broke up with me. She was smart enough to break up with me, you know. Um, I'm getting in fights. I'm working at a bagel shop. I'm barely make ends meet. And at that point, I just made the decision. I just said, okay, look, I'm I'm not gonna be a professional athlete. I think I'm pretty good at memorizing things. I think I have an interest in people. I'm going to just decide. I just decided to do school. I decided that was the, that was the track. And so like some people pick the military because it's a, like if you you know what to expect at least in terms of the, the you know the passages that you're going to go through. And for me, that was school. And so I decided to get back in school. I moved into a studio apartment by myself. I quit partying completely. I didn't go to parties. I got really serious about fitness. So I just started running and lifting mm-hmm. weights and I studied. Yeah. I think I was really afraid. I think I was like, you know, and I, and these days, you know, cause my lab studies fear and I get into this whole thing around mindsets and people always ask me like, is it better to do something from a place of love or fear? Like depends. And at yeah. that point, fear was the best motivator for me. And I just basically worked like crazy. And, and it's interesting because I didn't have a, mentor or someone to bring me to that but once I started doing that you know there was one professor in particular who took note he was like oh you know you seem really interested in this stuff and I was like yeah because he was teaching me about depression schizophrenia neurochemicals mm-hmm. I, th- I was totally turned on by the world of neuroscience it, didn't, it wasn't even called neuroscience back then but this one guy Harry Carlisle he was teaching me about thermal regulation and how the brain works and how receptors in the skin relate to perceptions in the mind and and um, and he also had a deep sensitivity to mental disease. And I'd seen a lot of that, you know, I'd seen a lot of depression and anxiety in my own family. I'd had a friend um, commit suicide. Another friend become schizophrenic. I think he's still walking the mission district of San Francisco mm-hmm. now. Um, seen some friends become addicts. And so here was a, so, someone explaining that there's actually a, an underlying basis for this. And I just, is myself into Is it.
0: that the same guy who, uh, who, you know, would smoke underneath the, the vacuum hood and stuff like
2: that? Like a bit of an iconoclast. Yeah, he was amazing. <laughs> yeah. So he was a, a favorite teacher of many students, uh-huh. but if you could get into his lab, then you were kind of one of the chosen man. ones, I guess. It's so, like the
1: perfect mentor at the perfect. perfect time for you. Yeah.
2: So he used to drink coffee in lab, which you're not supposed to do. He used to smoke cigarettes in lab right. and in the fume hood. <laughs> and they used to come and yell at him and he would do it anyway. Um, and I thought, you know, this guy, is, he doesn't even know what it is, but you know, he's punk rocker. He doesn't mm-hmm. even know. And so, you know, he gave me an opportunity to work in his lab. And then at some point he told me, if you go to graduate school, they'll actually pay you to do science. And what ended up happening at that point was I, I hit a brick wall because I was, I had a lot of resentment toward my dad. Mm-hmm. I felt, you know, here's my dad. He was a scientist. He had, you know, left us all this kind of thing. And I realized if I didn't do this, if I didn't take this opportunity, I, it was going to be the most foolish thing ever. You know, what am I going to do? Spite my you know, right. my parents, you know, I was 20 years old at that point. So I just made the decision, I'm going to get a PhD, I'm going to become a professor, I'm going to get tenure, I'm going to be like this guy, you know, the, right. this guy who has looked like he had a pretty good life to me. And so that's pretty much how I spent the, you know, the last 25 years of my life.
0: 25 years helping us, Mark get to the bottom of the mind body relationship using science and it's evidence-based and how wonderful is it to hear the challenges that someone like Huberman as in his own right, as an expert that it wasn't all like home runs and easy Mm -hmm. pickings. He went through his own challenges. He had, his moment of realization, his tipping point, Uh, you know, like David Goggins being the pest controller and uh, severely overweight. Like so many people that we have studied, he found the capacity to choose to shoot for the moon, uh, which is exactly what we do on this podcast, to try and be the best version of yourself, to work it out. So what a perfect start to to the Huberman show.
1: Yeah. To, to kicking, kicking us off into this way of thinking, I, I believe that story is a great demonstration, Mike, of the type of drive <clears throat> that an individual like Huberman and from a broader perspective, uh, any sort of moonshotter, because they've got to that rock bottom moment and they've had the ability to realize it. So, right. I'm, I'm living in a bantam home. I've got this ferret and he decides, <laughs> right. I've noticed that I've got a particularly good memory. Or I've noticed that I'm quite interested in such and such. The ability to not get too bogged down and uh, feel, oh, sorry, f- poor me, and so on, and kind of making excuses. Instead, he's able to turn around and, and start doing a lot of hard work. And obviously, where he is now is is pretty well documented and established. I think what's also quite interesting is the admission of this individual who sort of inspired him. And that reminds me of a lot of the moonshotters that we've heard from, where you are rubbing shoulders with individuals that you want to learn from. You know, you choose the company that you want to hang out with because they inspire you to greatness. They uh, teach you something when you're hanging out with them. And I quite like this. Uh, admission again from Huberman here calling out this professor who's you know smoking under the hood the extraction hood and so on being a uh, although maybe not a mentor as he would call it but an individual that he admired that then inspired him to go out and continue learning to stay true to the path and so on I think is is another great little extension to that breakdown of um, Huberman's 1994 moment of realization.
0: <laughs> I think we all have those, and I think one of uh, one, you know, if you're listening to the show right now, and you're thinking, "Oh, I haven't had a moment of realization for a little while." Well, how about this? You can become a member of the Moonshots Podcast. You can actually get access to our Moonshots Master Series, which is exclusively for our members. Mark. I think that is a very exciting proposition. But I think before we talk about how you can do that, we should tip the hat, of course, to those that already have become members of the Moonshots podcast. That's right. The membership keeps on growing. The family of Moonshots
1: learners who are joining us every week and every month and learning out loud with us include, duh, 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 uh, first of all, our individuals who have been with us for well over a year now, Mike. Bob, John, Terry, Marjolin, Ken Dietmar, Marjan and Connor, Yasmin, Lisa, Sid, and Mr. Bonjour, all of whom have been with us for over a year.
0: Well and done, that- right? Mr. Bonjour finally gets the, uh, the anniversary mention. Well done, Mr. Bonjour.
1: Yeah. yeah. Bonjour, Mr. Bonjour. Welcome to the annual club, but short on his heels include Paul and Berg, Kalman and David, Joe, Crystal, Ivo, and Christian, Samuela, Kelly, Barbara, and Andre, Matthew, Eric, Abby, and Chris, Deborah, and Lassie, Steve and Craig, Javier, Daniel, Andrew and Ravi, Yvette and LGV, Karen and Raul, PJ, Nikuara, Ola and Ingram, Dirk, Emily, Harry and Karthik, Venkata, Vipara, Marco and Sundus, Jet, Pablo, Roger and our brand new member, Steph as well, who's joined us recently. Thank you so much, Steph, for joining this illustrious crowd of members who are joining us from all over the globe learning out loud with us week in, week out. And as you say, Mike, have the added benefit of getting access to the monthly master series.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So if you want to become a member, if you want to cross the Rubicon and choose for being the best version of yourself, head over to moonshots.io, become a member. You get so many goodies, but most of all you get lunar powered good karma and you're going to need that. So you get a good night's sleep because after a good night's sleep, you can wake to the morning you can rise and be the best version of yourself and we have a clip from Dr. Andrew Human telling us how we can feel energized when we awake from our sleep i wake up in the morning and i want to reach for my phone but i know that even if i were to crank up the
2: brightness on that phone screen it's not bright enough to trigger that cortisol spike and for me to be at my most alert and focused throughout the day and to optimize my sleep at night. So what I do is I get out of bed and I go outside. And if it's a bright, clear day and the sun is low in the sky or the sun is you know starting to get overhead, what we call low solar angle, then I know I'm getting outside at the right time. If there's cloud cover and I can't see the sun, I also know I'm doing a good thing because it turns out, especially on cloudy days, you want to get outside and get as much light energy or photons in your eyes but let's say it's a very clear day and I can see where the sun is. I do not need to stare directly into the sun. If it's very low in the sky, I might do that because it's not going to be very painful to my eyes. However, if the sun is a little bit brighter and a little bit higher in the sky, sometimes it can be painful to look at. So the way to get this sunlight viewing early in the day is to look toward the sun. If it's too bright to look at directly. Well, then don't do that. You just look toward it, but not directly at it. It's absolutely fine to blink. In fact, I encourage you to blink whenever you feel the impulse to blink, never look at any light sunlight or otherwise. That's so bright that it's painful to look at because you can damage your eyes. But for this morning sunlight viewing, it's best to not wear sunglasses. That's right. To not wear sunglasses, at least for this morning sunlight viewing. It is absolutely fine to wear eyeglasses or contact lenses, so-called corrective lenses. In fact, those will serve you well in this practice or this tool because they will focus the light onto your neural retina and onto those melanopsin, intrinsically photosensitive ganglion cells. If your eyeglasses or contact lenses have UV protection, that's okay. There's so many different wavelengths of light coming from the sun and they are bright enough that they will trigger the mechanisms that you want triggered at this early time of day. So try and get outside, ideally within the first five minutes of waking, or maybe it's 15 minutes, but certainly within the first hour after waking. I want to share with you three critical things about this tool of morning sunlight viewing. First of all, this is not some woo biology thing. This is grounded in the core of our physiology. There are literally hundreds, if not thousands, of quality peer-reviewed papers showing that light viewing early in the day is the most powerful stimulus for wakefulness throughout the day, and it has a powerful positive impact on your ability to fall and stay asleep at night. So this is really the foundational power tool for ensuring a great night's sleep and for feeling more awake during the day. Second of all, if you wake up before the sun is out, You can and probably should flip on artificial lights in your internal home environment or apartment or wherever you happen to live if your goal is to be awake. If you wake up at four in the morning and you need to be awake, well then turn on artificial lights. Once the sun is out, however, once the sun has risen, then you still want to get outside and view sunlight. Some of you will wake up before the sun comes out and if you're asking whether or not turning on artificial lights can replace sunlight at those hours, unfortunately, the answer is no, unless you have a very special light. And we'll talk about what kind of light the bright artificial lights in your home environment are not, I repeat, are not going to be sufficiently bright to turn on the cortisol mechanism and the other wake up mechanisms that you need early in the day. The diabolical twist, however, is that those lights in your home or apartment or even on your phone are bright enough to disrupt your sleep if you look at them too late at night or in the middle of the night. So there's this asymmetry in our retinal, our eye biology and in our brain's biology, whereby early in the day, right around waking, you need a lot of light, a lot of photons, a lot of light energy and artificial lights generally just won't accomplish what you need them to accomplish. But at night, even a little bit of artificial light can really mess up your so-called circadian, your 24-hour clocks and all these mechanisms that we're talking about. So if you wake up before the sun is out and it's still dark, please turn on as many bright artificial lights as you possibly can or need, but then get outside once the sun is out.
1: Mike, I mean, we are hearing some crazy practical tips from Dr. Huberman here, aren't we? How great is this when we can actually here, scientifically backed uh, productivity hacks and advice for when we're trying to either wake ourselves up, which obviously we all do every single day, as well as go back to bed.
0: Well, I think the the you get Huberman at his best. You get the the data, you get the facts, but you also get the practical tips. Mm. And this is one that I hadn't heard until we started researching this show. I'm like, I got to get myself outside as soon as possible, but equally. We hear the data behind why you need to turn off all your devices and screens well before you go to bed if you want to calm the system down in order to have a good night's sleep, right? Yeah, exactly. And this really
1: stems down to some of the work that uh, Huberman does over at Stanford. They really look into the way that obviously the brain works, uh, as I mentioned earlier, as well as repairing brain circuits. But right now they're digging a lot into uh, vision so everything that we're hearing in that clip with regards to advice around waking yourselves up is totally founded in Huberman's science and the research that he's doing. I mean, Mike, for me, I was exactly the same. This was not a piece of advice or recommendation that actually I'd, I'd really understood or heard of before. And I was, I was quite pleased because it then encouraged me to really embrace those moments in the morning when I have to get outside walk the dog as soon as I get up. It was a reminder or a um, reimbursement, I suppose, to say, yes, make sure you go and do it. Don't find an excuse to cut it short. Stay out as much as you can. Enjoy that sunshine. Get that not only fresh air, but more importantly, that brightness that then triggers your body to wake up.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm kind of thinking to make this work in my routine, like I'm thinking, like a like I did this morning, like a 20 minute walk, no sunglasses. I, I literally just walked to the park, around the park, came back home, and that's kind of how I'm trying to process it. Um, and maybe to make it a little bit easier, you know, what we can do is, you know, we can pick uh, a little bit of content. If, if that's appropriate, to listen to on the way. So I was actually uh, listening to the clips for this show and took a nice walk. It was 20 minutes and got back and ready to record. That was a very pleasant way to start the day. Mm-hmm. Um, how are you going to incorporate this? I mean, I think you might have the advantage. I think you have a dog. So that kind of means you got to get out of the house. But um, how are you going to make this work, Mark? Well, I think for those days when I don't have the dog, So let's
1: say I'm, I'm on a business trip. Let's use that as an example. Hmm. I don't have the, um, the reason to get the dog outside, uh, take it for a walk and so on. Instead, I've, I'm under my own power of motivation to get out there. I think, I think it's very similar to yourself. I think the key thing as Huberman points out is don't wear sunglasses, don't hide away or shy away from that brightness, even if it feels a little bit empowering, Uh, sorry, a little bit uh, uh, disabling. Instead, go out thinking you're absorbing that, that energy, but also brightening yourself up, brightening your day, getting yourself ready for the stimulus that you're going to run into. I think you're right, turning on a good uh, podcast. For me, music is is a great motivator. Mm. Obviously, we've spoken about exercise before and we'll speak about it again later in the show. Doing some exercise in the morning is pretty essential for me. I, I think you're right. Just a nice, calm, 20 minutes Outside, just getting that blood pumping, similar like we would with a cold shower, just something that sort of stimulates. Yeah, exactly. Stimulates all of the uh, synapses in your brain to start turning on. What What I thought was quite interesting was also this admission around bright lights inside not being sufficient. For me, I've probably yeah. been under the assumption that it is okay to to turn on bright lights, particularly if you're in um, countries like the UK where it's a little bit dark in the mornings and so on. I think what's great now that we're learning from Dr. Uberman is you can do that, but you should pair it with an experience outside as quickly as possible once the sun does rise or once the clouds do pass. Yes,
0: Well, th- you make a good point here because the thing for me is... Um, you know, as listeners probably know, we have these elaborate uh, morning uh, rituals to kind of wake us up and, um, you know, stretch, journal, you name it, breathing exercises. But the thing about the transformation about getting outside relatively mm. early around sunrise, I I find it to be quite a natural thing. The desire to be up and about outside at as the sun dawns on the day, feels very naturally good to me. But here's the thing I'm fighting against is I'm so keen to crack into my day that I sort of look at the laptop sitting oh, yes. there. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, even like a 20-minute walk in the morning is deferring jumping into my work. And do you ever have this moment where you're like, oh, I just want to kind of crack in. And so the idea of getting outside is basically an interruption or a delay of getting into your work. And I find it hard to sometimes push through that. Do you ever have this kind of experience? It's, it's funny you say that. Uh, it,
1: it's what I do every day, in fact. I'm very guilty, and and, look, I'm I'm guilty about, and we'll talk about the end of the day routine in a minute as well. Uh, (laughs) But I'm I'm pretty guilty, Mike, of doing uh, the exact same thing. You know, I'll come in, obviously working from home a lot. I'll either open up the the personal laptop or the work laptop. I want to check what's taken place overnight, and I'll often do that as one of the first things I do. You know, before making a cup of coffee, before getting outside, it's something that. I've, I've uh, almost fallen into the habit of doing. And that contradicts exactly what uh, Dr. Huberman's advising us here. Likewise, or simultaneously at the end of the day, trying to go to bed. I mean, sometimes I'm pretty guilty of, of only catching up on messages when I'm starting to unwind for the day. You know, it'll be something I put off until I'm Mm. ready to rest. And actually that's completely contradictory to what Dr. Huberman's telling us here about the light, which is not a new idea that you know we've run into on the on the moonshot show before. Of course we know from people like uh, Cal Newport, leave your phone in another room and I know that that's something that you already do Yes I think I think both of these admissions coming from an individual like Dr. Huberman, it's a stark reminder to me about how I should take more ownership over these practices that I have. both at the end, but also the start of the day in order to become this uh, best version of myself, somebody who is not only productive, but also relaxed and creative in a mindset where I can absorb and be collaborative with other people, I think stems from the way that you set yourself up.
0: It really is like the, the truth in the idea that a good night's sleep, you know, waking up fresh in the morning is based on your sleep and a good sleep is based on how you prepare. And, uh, without getting too off track here, what I discover have discovered, particularly through using the aura ring is the two or three hours prior to getting into the bed are crucial. Don't eat dinner too close to bedtime. Don't look at screens too close to bedtime, but also literally go into a rest state, let the body simmer down. This, all of this is becoming more and more self-evident to me about engineering the good sleep, which is about engineering a good wake-up, which is about feeling alert and ready for the day. (laughs) And... (laughs) I'll tell you one other thing. I, I, with my, my best friends, we're all now uh, in our late 40s and laughing at how staying in good health is becoming such a big project. <laughs> we're not <laughs> in our 20s anymore. And I will say to you, Mark, like what you will begin to realize is that the importance of these habits and attention to them is so mm. damn important because it compounds good habits Mean you consecutively have good nights sleep, which means you have a good day, which means you have a good sleep and it builds. But inversely, if we don't follow the insights that are in the work of Dr. Andrew Huberman and many others about healthy habits for wellness, for our health, then the deterioration begins and unpacking it. It's like if you ate way too much over the Christmas break, getting off those kilograms can be hard work. And Mm. like in life, if you don't start good practices early, as you get older, it gets harder to incorporate those new habits, those habits of success, of wellness and good spirit. But Mark, I can tell you there is one thing scientifically proven in the land of woo-woo, that will help you and that is going into your Apple podcast app and giving us a rating or a review or going into your Spotify app and giving us uh, a rating because, Mark, I'm looking here and we have listeners on YouTube and many, many other places, but the main places that our listeners find themselves is in Spotify and the Apple podcast app. Now, without creating a race here, Mark, because this is all about balance on this show today in particular, We've got 37 ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts, which is pretty good. But we have 379 on Spotify. Like this is a call out to all the Apple Podcast listeners. If you are out there, we need your love because those Spotify guys and gals are like they're leaving a lot of feedback for us, um, giving us a lot of love. But we don't want the Apple crew to be left behind, do we, Mark? Well, we don't want to prioritize, uh, you know,
1: subconsciously Spotify. Oh, you know? Of, course, we, of course. We want to make sure that our Apple Podcast listeners are getting um, everything that they deserve. So please, Apple Podcast listeners, you know, feel free to pop in and leave us a rating or review if you're enjoying learning out loud with us every week, because it really does not only make a difference for our little game of Spotify versus Apple podcast, but it also helps us get into the ears and the devices of listeners from around the world. And it's fair to say, Mike, that we're really reaching all four corners of the globe. And when we do hear from our listeners from uh, exotic places around the world, when you leave us reviews, or in fact, you just get in touch with hello at moonshots.io, we love hearing from all of you. And it really demonstrates to us that the world enjoys listening and learning out loud. And this is exactly what we're trying to do on this show. So please pop into Spotify as well as Apple podcasts, leave us those ratings and a review if you're on the Apple podcast and we'll see where we go to over the next couple of weeks, Mike.
0: Guaranteed uh, by the Institute of woo-woo that this will bring (laughs) you peace and calm. And if that doesn't work, well, why don't you just have a listen to Andrew Huberman who has a lot of thoughts on the subject.
2: Billions of people suffer from stress. And there are tools to combat stress that involve things like meditation, breath work, good nutrition, good social connections, and avoiding all bad things in life. And while those are powerful, the problem is they require that people step away from the stress-inducing activity. By contrast, my lab and other laboratories have been very interested in developing tools that allow us to push back on stress. In other words, feel more calm in real time, meaning without having to disengage from the stress-inducing activity. The best way that I am aware to do that is called the physiological sigh. A physiological sigh is a pattern of breathing that involves two inhales followed by an extended exhale. Physiological sighs were discovered in the 1930s as a pattern of breathing that people go into spontaneously when they're in claustrophobic environments or in deep sleep when there's a buildup of a gas called carbon dioxide in the bloodstream. Carbon dioxide triggers the impulse to breathe. There are neurons in the brain that know when carbon dioxide levels have gotten too high, and when the levels get too high, they trigger inhale and exhale, or double inhale and exhale. Now, you can do physiological size voluntarily anytime you're feeling too stressed and you want to feel more calm. You do it like this. So it's a double inhale, and typically the first inhale is longer than the second, but the second one is still important to do. And then a very long extended exhale. Typically, both inhales are through the nose, and the exhale is through the mouth. That's the most effective way to do the physiological sigh. However, you can't breathe through your nose or your mouth for whatever reason. Do it all through your mouth or all through your nose. The second inhale is really important because your lungs are not just two big bags of air. They're two big bags of air with lots of little sacks, millions of sacks. And if you were to lay out those sacks, their volume is as big as a tennis court. And that allows both the intake of more oxygen, but also the offload of carbon dioxide. So when you do the double inhale, it reinflates any of these little sacks that have collapsed. And in doing so, it allows you to offload more carbon dioxide. So if you're feeling stressed in any circumstance, inhale twice through the nose and then exhale long through the mouth. If you want, you can repeat it a second or even a third time, but typically just one or two, maybe three physiological sighs are sufficient to bring your level of stress and alertness down very fast and allow you to feel more calm.
1: Mike, I nearly missed the pickup from that (laughs) clip because I was uh, doing the physiological sigh myself. Double Double breath in, long exhale out. This is a great brand new idea. On the Moonshot Show, we've obviously spoken about breathing, uh, as well as the idea of trying to bring a little bit of calm into uh, a a key moment during your day. But I think this is a really interesting extension to this concept of of breath work. Breath work—we've just released, obviously, the Oxygen Advantage again. There's a lot of uh, research around it, but this idea for me wasn't something that I was necessarily aware of before Dr. Huberman. Revealed it through this clip, and it reminds me of the, I suppose, the science that exists behind this physiological moment in my day, whereby my body is uh, ready for this fight or flight response. Whereby, when we were, you know, cavemen with predators and so on, it was it was a substantial thing where I'd need to run away. Nowadays, obviously, my levels of stress are different. There'll be emails, there'll be notifications. Maybe it'll be a stress over how much sleep I'm getting at night or whether I'm waking up correctly. There's many, many different forms of anxiety and stress that impacts us each day. What I like about this very practical Mm. science tip is just how easy it is to do at any moment of the day. And it can be as effective with just one rotation. One circuit. The,
0: the crazy thing is where we've had already two like power tips, power habits yes. that would make James Clear proud of us right, right, right. Now. The one is getting out of bed and getting outside as quick as possible, getting a bit of sunlight, this double breath in to reduce anxiety and stress. Wow. And you can already hear as well, without doubt, just how comprehensively Huberman knows his subject. He has really done the work on the studies. He really has the evidence behind these things. I would say, Mike, specific to breath work, we obviously did a whole show on the power of breath. If I remember it right, it was James Nestor, wasn't it? James Nestor, yes, that's correct. Yep. Yep. So here's the thing like, the principle. Behind what Andrew is talking about, and what we've done uh, with James Nestor and what I've done in my own research is that fundamentally, if you're experiencing some stress, some anxiety, and you want to kind of get back to an even keel, like here's a simple one. Get out of your seat, leave the computer, go for a walk. don't listen to anything, don't watch anything. Just walk and walk slowly, get outside. That's a really good one. Yeah. Specifically to breath, though, here's the key. Whatever you breathe in, in terms of for how long and how much, you need to breathe out for longer. Because effectively, when you're breathing in, you're filling the body with air, you're increasing the heart rate. And when you're exhaling, pushing all that air out, and you're slowing heart uh-huh, right? rate. This was the big aha uh-huh for me. So a lot of people like, and one of my favorites is what they call four, seven, eight breathing, four mm. in, seven hold, eight out. For me, it is a sublime experience. Even the hold feels great. Um, so whatever you're looking for, whether it's a little less stress, a little less anxiety, or just want to cool the jets, as I always talk about, Breath is a powerful one. And, you know, for those of you who are listening to the show right now and maybe during your workday, you notice a little bit of an elevated heart rate or if you ever take time to notice and experience quite shallow breathing, Mm -hmm. they are often signs that your body is going through some sort of stress. And it might not be like stress about work. It could be like um, lack of good breath, could even be just, Um, you're exhausted and you're not present. There's all sorts of things that could be going on. But um, whether you're using the the Huberman approach of two in, one out, or you're using the 478, all of these, just Google them and we'll have links in the show notes at moonshots.io. The key here is what Andrew is talking about is breathing in is always something that increases your heart rate. And that's why it's so crucial that the exhale is always long, longer and slower. And that's what really starts to reset the system and to cool down. And there are so many variations. Mark, have you heard of like box breathing where it's a three, 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 and there's all these different tempos. It's, it's really cool, isn't it?
1: Yeah. We we've dug into a three, three, three as well on the show. And I think that's, Uh, A very, very interesting one. I think we even covered another form of breathing, perhaps with Yoko, you know, from an army perspective, from a Navy perspective, there's so many um, benefits, whether you are under incredible intense stress, or maybe you're just feeling a little bit short of breath. Like you've just said, Mike, another thing for me that I try and do, and I suppose it's a similar insight to just getting up and walking around is try to elongate my, my body a little bit. Because what happens probably naturally right. during my day is I'll lean forward a little bit while I'm working on the computer. Yes. And if I'm doing that for a little bit too long, so I, I start to notice either I, I'm a little bit short of breath, perhaps. And I think that's because my body is sort of caved over. So yeah.
0: therefore it's not getting as much. It's the shallow breathing element. Good answer that's a, that's a really that's a, that's really good because you are right we're not actually designed to sit like we do for eight hours you you know like uh we um we did that fabulous show on flexibility and stretching and you know we start uh we come into this world as people that are born to walk and hunt and then we end up sitting like folded and no that's wonder right. we all have lower back problems um so, apart from doing something good for your hips and lower back, you're, you're right. Like when I put my desk in stand mode, oh my gosh, it feels so good. Like mm. it's, it's going to be weird, Matt, but I feel more powerful. Like I feel more stronger when I do standing work than when I do sitting work. Does yeah. that, can you relate I, to that?
1: So, actually, I, I, I do. And uh, the extension I could build on, a, on that is the idea, and it's going to sound a little bit meta, I suppose, Mike, but the idea that you are grounded. And this was something that I was introduced to actually when I was, when I was a a kid, you know, probably less than 13, I was probably about 10 years old. And it was a drama teacher who said, you know, when you're on the stage and you're projecting your voice and you are feeling a little bit nervous. You want to stand powerfully. You want to have both your feet flat on the ground rather than, you know, when you're sometimes waiting in a line and you're jumping from foot to foot, leaning on one hip and so on. Instead, have both feet planted. Your strong foundation, that triangle, will then give you the confidence to go out and project your voice as well as your point far more uh, eloquently and cohesively than if you are perhaps, you know, leaning to one side. Maybe the element here. And going back to the standing desk example is because we are standing up straight, we're inhaling better, mm-hmm. we're exhaling better, and therefore that's contributing towards this idea of confidence and feeling more relaxed. But even so, I, th- I think the the element or the uh, the outcome is exactly the same, isn't it? You're feeling a little bit calmer, a little bit more in control of whatever the project or work that you're trying to do is just by simply either standing or at least trying to um, expand yourself in order to take deeper, more substantial breaths. That then, again, similar to mm. Roger Frampton, who wrote the Flexible Body, the the book you were referencing, is we're relieving that lower
0: back pain from sitting yeah. in chairs too long. So check this out, Mark. There's actually studies that have been done on what people call grounding or earthing, which is um, ha- making sure that your you take off your shoes. And uh, walk and stand and work with your shoes off is proven uh, to reduce inflammation, pain, stress, and so forth. So, I think we're like we're totally getting into the Huberman space here, but uh, I totally see uh, this idea of grounding or earthing like no shoes, letting your feet touch the real ground. That's actually been found to have a positive effect. I building like upon the fact that it 's much better, obviously, for your hips and lower back, building upon your point that you 're not kind of crunching over your lungs uh, like we do on our modern desk, I mean we are we are putting up in some serious work here at not only reducing anxiety and stress with this breath work but really kind of throwing in a lot of those moonshots learnings and mark i don 't think we 're quite finished with uh this uh if you will this workout that we're doing on the body right now are we
1: No, that's right we're starting to really explore this body focus impact that we can have and the control that we can implement for our physical selves that I think impacts, therefore, our um, unconscious or or mental selves. So as an extension of that, we're next going to hear from Dr. Uberman, now talking to Jeff Cavalier, who's a world-class physio and physical therapist, who's going to help you and I, as well as our listeners, understand and go out and build our own weekly workout program.
2: One of your mantras is, uh, you know, if you want to look like an athlete, train like an athlete. And I think that's something really special that sets aside what you do from what a lot of other um, very well qualified people do. And in terms of the use of weights and resistance, whether or not it's body weight or, or weights in the gym or pulleys versus cardio, you know, in terms of overall health, aesthetics and athleticism, is there a way that you could point to, you know, the idea that maybe people should be doing, you know, 50% resistance training and 50% cardio. Maybe it's 70-30, maybe it's 30-70. And and here I'm talking about the typical person who would like to maintain or maybe even um, add some muscle mass, probably mm-hmm. in particular areas for most people, mm-hmm. as opposed to just overall mass, although we'll talk about that later. And people who want to maintain a relatively low body fat percentage and be in good cardiovascular health. What's the sort of contour of a basic program that anybody could think about as a starting place?
3: Um, I, I think it's like a 60, 40 split, which would be leaning towards uh, weight training, you know, strength and, 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 uh, and then, you know, the conditioning aspect be about 40%. So if you look at it over a course of a training week, I mean, five days in a gym would be a great task. And obviously not in the gym, it could be done at home, but three days, strength training, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, conditioning, Tuesday, Thursday, you know, two days. It's a, it's a pretty, Easy roundabout way to split that up. Of course, depending upon training goals. And as you said, the aesthetic goals like that will shift dramatically. But if you want to see the benefits of both, that's probably the the effective dose for strength training and the effective dose for conditioning at the bare minimum level. Again, being a much better performer conditioning wise, you're gonna to want to do more than that. And in terms of the duration of those
2: workouts, what's your suggestion? I I've been weight training for about 30 years, running for about 30 years. Um and mainly for health and have found that if I work hard in the gym or at resistance training for more than 60 minutes or so, it's very hard for me to recover. I start getting colds. I start getting weaker from workout to workout, but amazingly, at least to me, if I keep those workouts to about 10 minutes, 10 minutes of up and 50, five, zero mm-hmm. minutes or so of really hard work for resistance training. And I keep the cardiovascular work to about 30 to 45 minutes. I feel great. And I seem to make some progress, at least
3: someplace in the workout from workout to workout. Yeah. I mean, it's, those are good numbers because those are kind of numbers that we usually preach. We try to keep our workouts to an hour or less if possible. Now, depending upon the split that you're following, if you're on a total body split, there's just going to be more that has to be done in a given amount of time um, that, and again, if you're training primarily for strength, that could prolong the workout because the longer rest times in between sets, but in general, when you're not focused on that one aspect, but the overall health picture, then you can get the job done in, in, under, in under an hour. And again, I always say, on top of if, if you want to look like an athlete, train like an athlete, is you can either train long or you can train hard, but you can't do both. And I really believe that the focus for me, I have a busy life. I have a lot of other things that I do, believe it or not. And it's like, I, I want to go hard and I want to go get out. And I find that my body also responds to that. And I think a lot of guys' bodies respond to that. And particularly- as you start to get older, I think it's the it's the length of the workout that actually causes more problems than the intensity of what you're doing. Particularly if you're warmed up properly, like you said, I've found personally that my warm up has had to become more of an integral part of my my workout than it ever has before. I never I could get in the gym when I was 20, and I'm going right over. I'm doing one set, two sets. I'm in. And I'm ready to go. You know, and I never do another workout warm up set for any of the other exercises I do the rest of the day. Um, that's not That's not true anymore, you know, and I found that as long as I'm willing to sort of give myself a little bit of a warm up, the intensity is not what bothers me you know I'm, I'm I'm very much in control of the weights that I use, and it doesn't bother me, but if I start to go pretty long, I start to feel achy or I start to have problems, so again, depending upon age, that also plays a factor in the length but again, I think everybody can achieve on a standard program can achieve the results that they want within an hour
0: so keeping your w- workouts to an hour is actually, it sounds like, sure. But once you think about what it takes for a proper workout, it is a quite a limit when you think about preparing, getting your gear, stretching, warming up, doing the work, cool down, all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. But what's really interesting is to hear both of them talk there about programmatically, I mean, first of all, I mean, want to look like an athlete, you have to train like an athlete. and I think yeah. that is the the hard truth of what we just heard there. But also what you hear both with Jeff Cavalier, who's very famous from Ahleen X, of course, and Andrew Huberman is you you see how systematic their approach is talking about I'm doing strength today, I'm doing cardio tomorrow, doing this combination. to me, that's been the real insight for my mm. personal workout uh, regime, really, Thinking about when am I doing strength, when am I doing cardio, and when am I doing uh, low impact uh, kind of cardio work, Um, and finding the right mix of those, and then I throw into this um, my rate of recovery, and that's been a huge insight as well. So that I don't go too hard, so that it takes you know so many days for me to to recover. What? Where are you at with your workout program? What have been the key decisions you've made about how you're designing it so that you can be fit and healthy whilst, you know, having a wife, having a job and all the obligations that we have at life, how have you designed it?
1: I I think you're similar, uh, similarly to your idea around recovery. That's certainly playing much more of a role in my approach to workouts. I think, you know, even as recently as perhaps six months ago, I was probably pushing as much as I could with zero regard for my body being something that needed to recover. I was not aware of the time that it would perhaps take to recover from maybe a long run or a good swim or maybe a a workout in a gym doing some resistance training. Mm. Instead, what I'd notice is I feel very lethargic, maybe a bit grumpy, my body would ache. The next workout or two might suffer because of it. And I never really thought too much of it because I had this, I suppose, youthful ambition just to go as hard and fast as you can. But now with a little bit more education, um, and a little bit more awareness, recovery definitely plays more into the routine or the regime that I have each week. I feel less guilty about taking maybe uh, a day or so to just recover, go a little bit slower. Maybe it's a lighter run than usual, something that still gets me moving, but it's, it's a little bit more intentional. And that intentionality with regards to the systematic or programmatic uh, scheduling of those workouts and having a varied structure is equally as important to me. I am not necessarily someone who will plug in my diary uh, fixed times When I'll work out, there are one or two events during the week that I will go and do religiously. For example, when there is a group of individuals, you know, going for a swim or going for a run, I'll join those. But in terms of my scheduling for going to the gym, what workout I'll do, to be honest, it's not something that I've actually really got into yet. I can see the benefit of having a good varied workout and I try intentionally to get a good spread of different exercises and movements and so on, because at the age of mid thirties, you know, I want to make sure I preserve uh, a, a body that can continue doing what I wanted to do. At the same time though, I think there is a little bit of a job that I can do more around scheduling in fixed times for warm ups, cool downs, spending time doing, um, you know, rowing or, or. Uh, strength workouts in the gym versus the next day. I, it's something that I can probably improve upon listening to Jeff and, and Andrew in that clip.
0: Okay. So let's double click on this and and go deeper on, on this kind of training regime uh, thing. I use the Aura Ring, which is O-U-R-A um, Aura Ring, and it has a score in it called the readiness score. And what I noticed was, um, through studying my readiness that if I have a really large workout and what I'm talking about is running here, 10, 15, 20 kilometers, putting in something, you know, pretty serious session, you know, running for an hour or two straight is that how much my body needs to recover from that. And so what's really interesting is I was running frequently back to back, like day after day. Mm. But what I noticed is a deterioration in my readiness because my body cannot recuperate in time before the next run. So what I've been doing is I've actually been studying the data and having walk days in between my run days to find the optimal amount of time between runs so that I can actually do a better run because I've had more appropriate and a better recovery because I left more time between the runs. And it all started with a friend of mine. Um, She said to me, oh, I would never run back to back. She always had a day in between. Well, fast forward to today, I actually have two days between my long runs and it is really interesting. I've been tracking uh, my readiness scores on the walk days and the readiness scores rise back up to like sort of out of a 100 index. I get back towards the 90s. I do a big run and the readiness after a big run, for example, uh, I ran 14Ks, it went back all the way down to a 76 I ran uh, before that another big 14K run. It went down to 72. So here's the interesting thing. I ran shorter. I ran 11Ks on a different day and my readiness only dropped to 79. So by studying the data from the aura Ring, I've been actually able to redesign my, my workout program. So it's run, two days walk, run again. And I incorporate some resistance work and stretching every day. But That's how I've designed it. And I, when I first started running in 2020, Mark, I was just running every day. and I just yeah. went as fast as I could. And I then realized that I need to vary the run and I need to create time between the runs. This is a whole way of saying learn, measure how you work out and improve upon it. And the beauty of it, Mark, is that when I go for a big run, I've often primed my readiness, mm. my rest, so that I can really get after it. And rather than what was happening is feeling, oh, I'm pretty knackered, but I'm going to be Goggins-like and keep going. Exactly, Yeah. And you've got to find what works for you, don't you? You've got to find out what works for you.
1: And I think that takes a little bit of practice, a little bit of admission that we all need to learn from other individuals, you know, such as Dr. Huberman. Uh, And also the idea of being able to take a step back take a step back from what you're doing right here, right now, and instead take a moment to maybe it's looking at the data, maybe it's looking at the bigger picture. And Mike, we have just one more clip for today's show where we're going to hear from Dr. Uberman and let's be honest, another moonshot classic. That's Yoko Willink, who's going to both discuss the value of being able to take a step back and think about detachment being a superpower. What is your
2: process for engaging detachment or for disengaging? Is it an active process where you go? You know, I'm I'm going to detach from this. I'm going to put myself in a situation that is pulling on me. There's this gravitational force, and I'm going to I don't know, create some imagery in my mind of walking away from it. Do I physically walk away from it? Do I outsource it to somebody else? What are, What are some
4: tools for detachment? Yeah, this is one of those situations where you and I had a discussion about the science and the practical application aligned. So my original experience with detachment was, and this is one of those moments where, you know, I said a lot of times things are just small moments over time and you make a little adjustment. This is one of those moments in my life. And I wrote about leadership strategy and tactics where I recognized like in a moment, what detachment was and how helpful it was. I'm on an oil rig doing a training mission, My whole platoon is in a skirmish line looking at a a large area of the oil rig that we're supposed to be clearing. Again, this is not combat. This is in the 90s. There's nothing going on. We're just doing training. And I'm standing in this skirmish line. And by the way, I'm the youngest and most junior guy in my platoon. And I'm standing there looking down the sight of my weapon. And I'm waiting for someone to make a call and tell us what to do. And I wait for five seconds. And I wait for 10 seconds. And I wait for 20 seconds. And no one's saying anything. And we're waiting for a leader in my platoon to to make a call to tell us what to do, tell me what to do. And finally, after like 30 seconds, which seems like an eternity, I can't take it anymore. And so I take a step like like a, a foot, a one foot step, 12 inches. I take a step off the skirmish line. I look to my left. I look to my right. And what I see is every other guy in my platoon is staring down their weapon, staring down the sight of their weapon, which means... Their field of view is tiny. It's like a 20 degree field of view. You're looking down the, the, the scope of your weapon or the sight of your weapon. And that's how big their field of view is. And I'm looking, I'm thinking, oh, there's my platoon commander. He's looking down the scope of the sight of his weapon. There's my platoon chief. He's looking down the side of his weapon. There's my leading petty officer. He's looking down the side of his weapon. There's my assistant platoon commander. He's looking down. The-. So everyone in the platoon is looking down the side of their weapon, which means they all have a very narrow field of vision. Well, when I take a step back and look to my left and look to my right, guess what kind of field of vision I got? I got a massive one. I can see the whole scene and I can see exactly what it is we need to do. And at that moment, look, as a new guy, you need to keep your mouth shut. You don't say anything. And I'm thinking, well, but no one else is saying anything. So I muster up all the courage I can. And I open my mouth and I say, hold left, clear right, which is a basic tactical call. No, no, no. This is not a patent level genius maneuver. It's just a normal call to make in a situation that we were in. I say, hold left, clear, right. And I'm expecting to get kind of slapped, told, shut up, new guy. But instead, everyone just repeats the call. Hold left, clear, right. Hold left, clear, right. And they, we execute the maneuver and we finish the clearance of this oil rig. And we get done. We get to the, the top of the oil rig, which means we cleared the whole thing. We're on the helo deck at the top and we go into a debrief. And now I'm expecting, okay, now I'm going to get told, hey, what were you doing? You need to keep your mouth shut. And instead, the platoon chief goes, hey, Jonko, good call on the cellar deck down there. And I was kind of like, yeah, that's right. But then I thought to myself, hold on a second. Why, if I'm the youngest, most junior guy in this platoon, why was I able to see what we needed to do and make that call? Why did that, why did that just happen? And then I realized it was because I t- took a step back, to use your term, I broadened my field of view which allowed me to think more clearly because instead of being hyper focused and narrowly focused, I broadened my range of vision. I took a breath before I made my call, right? I had to take my, take a, a nice breath to, to speak clearly. And I realized that taking a step back and detaching, I got to see infinitely more than even the most experienced guys in my platoon. And I started doing it all the time and I started doing it in land warfare. I started doing it in urban combat. I started doing it in all these tactical training scenarios. These are just training. This is the nineties started doing these training scenarios and it always allowed me to see what we needed to do. And then I started doing it, like when I was having conversations with people. I'm having a conversation with my platoon chief, and I can see that he's starting to turn a little red in the face, and I'm, you know we're we're about to argue about something. I said, "Oh, wait a second! I'm taking a step back, looking, vote. he's getting mad right now, and he's the platoon chief. Y- y- you better just de-escalate this thing real quick." And I said, "Hey, you know what, chief? That sounds good. Let me go take a re- let me go relook at the plan or whatever."
0: Detachment. I mean, Mark, this is something that we all need a little bit of because. If we're too in the zone, if we're feeling too much emotion, our ability to make a good decision is poor. And it shows you there's even scientific work to be done on detaching in order to have a wilder field of view, right?
1: Yeah, I love this metaphor, and this visual idea that Yoko is breaking down for us around looking down the barrel of a sight. I mean, my, more often than not, there have been times in my career where I've got so into the weeds, so focused on one particular problem that it blocks me being able to see the bigger picture. Maybe that's uh, one simple email. Maybe that's uh, somebody's point of view. Maybe that's uh, a bad phone call, whatever it might be. There's going to be something that will crop its head and make me reevaluate or change my mind around how much either I'm enjoying a certain activity, a certain project, maybe, or it's going to stop me being able to do my best work because I'm only focused on the thing that's right here, right now. And I think what we're hearing from from Huberman as well as Yoko in that clip uh, is the value of being able to look at things objectively, being able to take a step back and think, right, I've got to go out and do this today, but how is it laddering up to my overarching goal, my vision? Is it mattering to me as an individual? Is it mattering to my project as a whole? Is it going to have a positive impact on those around me? Is it going to have a positive impact on the work that I'm producing for whatever it might be? And it's something that we probably fall into quite regularly, isn't it? Something where we are only going to be working on the thing Mm. that's right here in front of us, as opposed to taking a step back and and looking at the whole project or the whole battlefield.
0: Well, the risk is, you know, you, you get, you're so fired up that you're working on something that really matters to you that you get too overinvested and you can't, can you get lost in the forest, don't you? You just mm. don't know where you are. You're just too fired up. And like, if you think about it, which athletes always make the best moves, who, who always come through with the clutch plays? it's the silent assassin. It's not the, it's not the hothead, is it?
1: And likewise in uh, business, it's not necessarily going to be the loudest person in the room. Who's the one to look out for or listen to. Perhaps it's the one who's a little bit quieter and who's observing, who's listening, who's learning, that then will come up with the most insightful recommendation because they're able to listen to the whole picture before they want to to say something. Mm -hmm.
0: So when we reflect on what we're learning from Huberman here, it really is take a breath, you know, wake up fresh in the morning, go out, be a happy and healthy self. But also if you want to see clearly, make good decisions, evaluate risks and options, this idea of detachment is simply just the capacity to step back, second order thinking, first principle thinking, all of the good things that we talk about here on the Moonshots podcast. These are the ways in which you can have the capacity to see a wider field of vision, see what's going on and make better insights, better steps, better decisions. And if you're working on your life's work, then it really matters, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, it really, really does. And we've dug into the idea of setting objectives and missions and statements and visions in order to try and be that best version of ourselves. But it really does come down to the discipline and the habits that you put into place in order to go out and action them. And I think Dr. Huberman is a perfect example of an individual who we've uncovered on The Moonshot Show, or at least we've explored on The Moonshot Show, that can help you and I, and I hope our listeners and subscribers, feel that little bit more energized and go out and start to work on themselves just as much as you and I.
0: We got so much from Huberman today, Mark. I'm I'm actually scared to ask what's on the (laughs) list for you for what is getting your attention, Mark? I'm going to intentionally
1: uh, work on, well, probably all five of them actually, but, but particularly I'm going to put into practice the physiological sigh which is something that I haven't explored uh, before. Mm -hmm. I'm going to obviously continue and uh, really exemplify the idea of getting energized with the sun in the morning. But this detachment piece, that's not something I'm going to forget about either. I think that's going to be intrinsic through actioning all of these tips and tricks. I think being able to take a step back. So what about you, Mike? I mean, I kind of cheated there.
0: Yeah, I think you picked them all, Mark. (laughs) No, I think uh, the early morning sunshine, that's my practical next step. That's what I'm going to work on. And um, oh my gosh, I'll be checking out more of Andrew Huberman and his podcast and his work. Uh, I can't wait. The guy's got to produce a book, doesn't he, Mark? He really does uh, because there's just so much content in there for us
1: to uh, to keep on learning from. Absolutely.
0: What a well, Mark, thank you to you and thank you to our members and to our listeners too. It's been great to dig into the science of living healthy and being well with Dr. Andrew Huberman on show 213. He had a remarkable story of finding his purpose in life and he's gone on to bring us powerful thinking, evidence-based work, starts with simple things like waking up and getting some sunshine. It talks with the psychological side. It talks about the absolute essence of a good balanced workout program. And hey, he's even got a little bit of thinking on detachment and how it can become your superpower. Do these things and you will be living healthy and well. And you'll be doing it knowing that Dr. Andrew Huberman has done the work, the science. He's got the evidence so we can learn out loud, be the best version of ourselves and come together here on the Moonshots podcast. Okay, that's a wrap.